0: One of the greatest kinds of fiction is based, founded, and created out of activism. And one of the most frustratingly dull, book-throwingly upsetting kinds of fiction is fiction based and created out of activism. I think there is a fine line that we walk if we choose to write our fiction with a moral pretense. And yet... Some of the books that we celebrate the most come from authors who looked at the world, didn't like what they saw, and responded. 1984 is a great example of a book that has lasting power, because George Orwell did not like the world he saw developing. Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, another example of an activist novel, the way that women were and continue to be treated in society. Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. The way that we no longer engage with books scared him. And he wrote a world and the consequences of humanity quitting the deliberate and slow but powerful process of reading and engaging with the text. The road by Cormac McCarthy of what it would look like if we destroyed our own world. You probably have your favorite. And I am so excited today to bring you perhaps... The newest activist response to a world where we subjugate and terrorize and the consequences of that. I was really excited for the opportunity to talk with Drew Bagley. You're going to love his story. When you do, shout it around town. Remember, every episode for this 13 week period is eligible to publish through the Create Collaborate platform. And you, the listener, vote with your listens. Get the news out there. You're gonna love this story from Drew Bagley. Welcome to Create Collaborate, the show for creative writers aspiring to publish their first book. My name's Jody Sperman, and I'm determined to help you whether you self-publish or storm the gated walls of agents and editors. Today, we'll hear from another aspiring author who's bringing a killer story to the community for a shot publication. So uh, you came to me through Jim Plath. I think that's a good place to start for people who have listened to the podcast. They've uh, probably already heard his his story, and uh, that's, that's how you and I connected. Uh, how do you know Jim? Give me kind of some of the background there.
1: Uh, Jim Plath is somebody I've known for the better part of 25 years. Uh, We met in a math class in high school uh, where we both were not very interested in the subject. So we would talk about music. We would draw uh, little mini comics and trade them back and forth um, and generally goof around. And that caused me to fail that class. So that's how that's how I met Jim Platt. And uh, we've been friends ever since.
0: That's fantastic. All right. So Jim (laughs) is the reason that you had to do sophomore year over again.
1: I had to do summer school. (laughs) I I did have to do summer school and I do place that squarely on Jim's shoulders.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. He's a mischief maker. He's always been that way. You know, it's a real, real dry sense of humor. You don't realize he's making fun of you until about 15 minutes later. And then you can't, you can't take a shot back. It's too bad. That's
1: what I love him for.
0: (laughs) Okay. And then other than that, I don't know you. So give me kind of the quick and dirty who's Drew, what do you do?
1: I grew up, I'm from Connecticut. Um, I grew up in a town called Windsor Locks. And uh, what's probably more interesting is my creative life. So I've always been creating things. Uh, When I was younger, I used to write stories. I used to create comic books, um, zines, uh, DIY type of Publications like literally Xerox, uh, Xerox, and Staples, is really into the punk rock scene and uh, the ethics that come along with that. Um, and as I got older, uh, I attended college, but I didn't graduate. It wasn't for me. Uh, so I'm a college dropout. I've married um, and now I write. And I still continue to kind of create uh, through a a couple of different uh, medium.
0: Okay. Um, And I think I recall that you and Jim are designing um, a a kind of a role-playing game. I might be mistaken on the type of game, but you you're working together to write a game. Is that, is that right? That's right. Okay. So um, games have always been something close to you and comics to me, who's not super deep into it. I've read one graphic novel. Uh, well, no, nah, I've read a couple, but one that really sticks out to me. And I've read uh, a couple series of Batman comics and a couple of other comics here and there, but just really not a ton. And that's all set up to say, in my mind, what's happening in role-playing games, especially in comics, seem to be connected. Do you agree? And if so, can you kind of flesh out that connection as you see it?
1: As far as the renaissance of both, Um, role-playing games and comic books absolutely all you have to do is look around at popular culture and that started that really started uh in my estimation around you know like you know 2008 2010 uh you started to see these things become popular again through different many different channels they became popular again comics came first and that kind of opened the way for role-playing games to say hey People typically saw as a certain type of person reads comic books, a certain type of person plays a role-playing game. And that's very far from it. Right. Uh, uh, the people that I know that read comics. There are all types of people that read comics, all types of people that play role-playing games. There really is not the, the stereotypical type that you're sold. Right. Uh, it, and the connection uh, between those two things is the love of story and being able to interact with it. So you interact with a comic book or a graphic novel uh, on a couple of fronts, as opposed to a novel, you know, a novel is more theater of the mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Comic book is no, look, this is what's actually happening. I'm going to show you Batman. I'm going to show you this character and what they're doing. So to me, it's kind of that, that's kind of the, the, the draw there. And then again, role-playing is theater of the mind, but you're in a lot of control over what's happening. Mm. You know, you do use dice, you do use a a light framework, but I find that the the, uh, role-playing games I like best are the ones that are storytelling role-playing games. And people enjoy them all in different ways, but that's kind of how I see them. It's a love of story.
0: I hear you saying that it's kind of immersive as far as playing games go, but I want to develop kind of a scale for somebody who's a a novice in role-playing games I'm thinking of pandemic would be one versus Dungeons and Dragons. Am I am I right in calling both of those role playing games?
1: Yeah. So, pandemic is what's called a legacy tabletop game. So, it's oh, not okay. exactly a role playing game. Um, it's tabletop games. There's tabletop role playing, and then there's gotcha. and then there's role, uh, tabletop games. So, to separate the two, I just call one role playing okay. games and the other one tabletop. Tabletops are very popular mm-hmm. too now, uh, like pandemic. Like um, that card game Munchkin had a huge, uh, a huge following for a while. Um, those are ones where you're not necessarily, it's a very kind of a light role play where you're not being asked to develop a character necessarily. Mm-hmm. You can do it if it's to your enjoyment, but Role-playing games are where, yes, you're being asked to actually create a character and it climb into their skin.
0: So you don't view Pandemic as a role-playing game at all. Would you view Munchkin? You maybe said like a light role-playing game in that case.
1: Yeah, Munchkin was made by Steve Jackson Games for people that don't want to read an entire rule book or people that maybe are intimidated by role-playing games. Like, look, uh, you you know, you can be this this character with all these neat weapons and all of this these you can Mm -hmm. cast curses and what have you but you can sit down and learn this in five minutes you know and i think i think it's a great entry point for people who like role-playing but maybe don't want to totally go all the way into starting buying all sorts of core books and what have you and to me yeah i mean i i I still play munchkin also i'll say far be it for me to really classify a game for somebody else so this is like all in my estimation. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I separate them. It's, it's role-playing versus sitting at a table and just kind of having fun. Yeah. No,
0: and that's I think that's what I really appreciate, though, is that when I have somebody like you on the show and you're an expert in an area, I want that to shine because I have an opportunity to learn. So do you think that there is a greater reward in diving deeper into the role-playing
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, So the reward in tabletop role-playing i mean, uh, tabletop gaming, like Munchkin connecting uh, to people. So there's a connection there. It's, you're all sitting down, it's communal. You're all sitting down at the table and you're understanding that for a while, and you say you've played Munchkin for a while, you're all saying, you know, there's nothing silly about being an elf. You know, there's nothing silly about, uh, you know, carrying some sort of a, Crazy, you know, in Munchkin, some sort of a crazy sword or something like that. Chainsaw, uh, Bloody's Memory, or Boots of Butt Kicking is
0: one of my. <laughs> yes, yep.
1: So it's a lot of fun. And uh, for me personally, uh, a role playing game is a way to go It take that experience okay. and kind of extend it. So in my group, we play uh, what's called campaigns. So it's not one. Session uh, of of role playing, and these sessions last wow. anywhere from three to six hours. Uh, it is, yeah, it is. It's extended over the course of months or years that you follow these same characters, or maybe you know, if your character doesn't make it through, somebody who's tied into them uh, tangentially, you know, you follow them through uh, until you feel their story has ended. And to me, there is something very satisfying about, for me personally getting over myself once a week and kind of saying, okay, I'm not, I don't, not that there's anything wrong with this, but I don't use role-playing games as a way to work things out in my life. Um, Uh It's true escapism. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, negative feeling around escapism, or it's used almost as like an an insult, like you're an escapist. And I say, yes, I'm an escapist, um, but I don't see it as a negative thing. I don't, I don't qualify it that way. What it does is for me is it allows me to say, no matter what's going on in my life, and you know we all know how things are going for a lot of people right now, it's, it's not particularly great, but this is a way to say for three to six hours, like I can kind of get over myself, get outside of myself, realize there's a bigger world than myself and say, I am this other person for a while. Uh, and that is even more so when you are in charge of the game. So you're not playing in the game; you are running the game. So you are the stage Mm -hmm. on which the players act. So you have to be the you have to be everything from the wind in the trees to the enemy combatant to the uh, you know the urchin child they meet on the street, whatever whatever it is. You have to do that, and it is in the moment. It's improv. It's communal storytelling, which is such a human thing to do.
0: I had a couple a couple of questions. There's a possibility that there better creators or better developers for a particular role-playing game and people who are not as gifted. What tipped me off, or at least I think tipped me off was when you said you are the wind in the trees. I thought a person, if you're going to be, if you're going to be the, the, the stage that the game is played on, then the ability to add in details seems to be really important to everybody's experience. Is that true?
1: That is very true. Yep. Okay.
0: So some people are just really gifted at creating the world and maybe other people aren't. The other thing I was going to ask you and talk about both of these, um, but you talked about playing over months or years. And I'm thinking as a really competitive person, I want to have a finite feeling of winning. Do you get that? Or do you have to let go of that idea of, of winning?
1: That's I really like that question because I think it's at the core of what I think role-playing games are. And the answer to that is twofold, you know, one, yes, there are small victories, but you don't beat a role-playing game necessarily so it's not like there's not necessarily one victor on a pile you know on on top of the pile at the end you complete a role-playing game basically you may have this character that is vanquished a thousand foes or or whatever all else you may be into for your particular storyline for your character to me that is an interesting part of their story Mm -hmm. but it is not the entire story you complete the story, you don't defeat the story. That's the difference. It's like you, you go through all of these experiences, which make up kind of the framework of time we're looking at for your character's life, you know? So that's the way I view it. There are other ways wherein, and this is the other part of it, where you create a dungeon and yeah. you must go through the dungeon. And if you live, you have one. And if you if you die, you have failed, yeah. create another character, try again. Those are two different ways to play role-playing games. And there are several other different ways. My, my way that I enjoy is kind of completing the story rather than creating a dungeon full of traps, you right. know, like, uh, like Indiana Jones.
0: I enjoy both. I enjoy the adrenaline of the dungeon a lot, but I'm really drawn to, and this is, I think, sort of piqued my, my eye in on what's going on with role-playing. But as I'm hearing you talk about it, it's starting to make more sense to me. And what's building into it is this idea that you have to be a really gifted storyteller. I wonder, have any of these role plays, do you think gone on to be books or movies? Uh, Are they the basis for the foundation for that you know of?
1: Yeah, it's fairly common. Either they are directly taken from the role playing IP.
0: Define IP for me real quick. I don't don't know what that means.
1: Uh, uh, Intellectual property.
0: Thank you. Go ahead.
1: Or somebody has created a story or a storyline so they they come from a a particular brand and then you see that brand move on to uh become oh wow look it's Dungeons and Dragons the movie
0: okay yeah or or so on
1: uh or somebody has created a a campaign or a a storyline in Dungeons and Dragons Mm -hmm. or any other role-playing game because there are several others (laughs) that they found interesting and kind of parlayed into, you know, a, a story, you know, uh, like be it a book, be it a TV series. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So there are roots
0: now. And this is, this is showing my limitations again, but um, I really enjoy Terry Goodkind's uh, series, the sort of the truth series. I don't like His political viewpoint. And I think the end of that book series, even if you're not familiar with it, anybody listening who is, I'm really happy to say, I think his political viewpoints are trash and that the last four or five books are completely ruined because he gets so deeply into, uh, if you're familiar with Ayn Rand, he's a real apostle of hers. And I like her work as well. If I don't think about the political implications of it Um, anyways, (laughs) this long tangent to say his work feels to me like it could have been birthed out of role-playing games. Um, and then where the limitations come in is that I think right now my brain is only seeing role-playing games as being elves and orcs and wizards. So there's something, uh, genetically fantasy about role-playing and I'd like you to disabuse me of that.
1: Certainly. Yeah. And it, it does have its roots in, uh, fantasy sword and sorcery. Um, it comes, uh, role-playing games come from war games and war games is what it sounds like. It's reenacting yeah. either famous or imagined wars with usually with miniatures. It includes dice, what have you. Those were big for, for quite a while, and they still are. Um, but the basis for most modern role playing, let's face it, comes from Dungeons and Dragons. Which even if people don't know what it is, you know <laughs> exactly. they've, they've heard of it, and they're just kind of like, I think my cousin, yeah. my cousin's kid, plays that in his basement or whatever, you know. Um, and uh, so it's with good reason. Yeah. That that people see it as a fantasy, uh, kind of a fantasy setting. And whenever you see it featured uh, in popular culture or in uh, most in most circumstances, it is you see somebody <laughs> you know wearing elf ears or carrying a wand or something. And there's let me let me just say there's nothing wrong with it. I think that's great. But the evolution of role playing has been there are role playing games where uh, mm-hmm. there are no dice involved and you are people in the modern yeah. world. So it is strictly kind of storytelling role. There are role-playing games that take place in the far-flung future, um, alternate dimensions, uh, historical role-playing yeah. has nothing to do with sword and sorcery. I'm talking about like World War II, uh, or or other settings, Victorian settings, uh, pretty much anything that you're into. I would want to try to turn into a role-playing game just for fun. Like I've done that. I've done that with some of my friends, where it's just like you're mm-hmm. just like oh well, you're really into whatever obscure hobby you have, well, where's the story in that? Like, yeah. what, how can we turn that into a role-playing game that's engaging?
0: Okay. I want to know, this is just brand new in my brain right now. Sure. The Sopranos is one of my favorite TV shows. I love The Sopranos so, so much. In fact, maybe is my favorite. I think it was so groundbreaking and you can go back whatever time you're in and connect right back in. But the show Breaking Bad is born because of The Sopranos. And I'm thinking right now, it feels to me like Breaking Bad was everything that was great about The Sopranos meets a role-playing game. Seriously, I'm thinking about the design of that show and all of the different places where you could choose how this adventure is going to go. And it feels like collaborative in the same way that you're talking about. So I think Breaking Bad owes its success to role-playing games. So I guess this is as good a place as any to to transition into your story that you're going to talk about today.
1: So right now I'm working on a novella and that is a uh, science fiction horror kind of comedy mm-hmm. that's based around uh
0: teeth <laughs> well all right science fiction comedy horror about teeth i am already intrigued
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the setting is essentially um the primary species in the in the world uh are born without teeth. And in their past, they never had teeth. And then in history, uh, in their history, they came across a species that had these shiny pebbles in their mouths that they looked real nice when they smiled and they, uh, they were able to chop up food and what have you. And so they're, they said to themselves, well, what, how can we have those? So long story short, they began to subjugate this species and take their, uh, their teeth. And they started calling teeth cogs. So uh, the primary races call, are called the Kwa and the, uh, the uh, subjugated race are called the Maws. Uh, so they're, they're kind of raising these, these uh, Maws to take their teeth. So fast forward, you know, about a thousand years. Uh, so now the main character in this story is uh, an entrepreneur and she is bringing forth this idea of (laughs) synthetic cogs because the cogs in this story yes they're they're lovely everybody wants them but these particular uh these particular people the qua their mouths are acidic so they eat through up to five sets of teeth in a lifetime no matter how much and they are always trying to take care of them they're always trying to 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 um save these cogs for as long as they can, but throughout their lifetime, they'll go through five. And each time they have to be reassessed and they have to be uh, implanted again. And it's not a particularly lovely process either. So she's introducing, this entrepreneur is introducing this new idea of synthetic cogs. And it's this big kind of, people have tried it before and been crushed by the uh, cog industry. And she's like poised to bring these to the masses and this is kind of where the story picks
0: up. Yeah, this there's so much in there. I mean, you're, you're clearly working in in um, kind of like an allegorical parable sort of you, alternate world where you're talking in the funnest ways about what we're seeing happening around us right now. So like elephant tusks um, in, in ivory farming. And I'm thinking, as far as the cogs go, do they have a function? Or is it specifically driven by appearance? Once they have the cogs, then can they eat different food or can they use them in different ways? What do the cogs enable them to do other than look pretty in a picture?
1: Yeah, I love that question because it's something that I, kind of, I get into in the story is, yes, they look pretty in a picture, but they have also allowed this species to be able to chew food. So now they ha- it's like decadent, like mm-hmm. they can get along just fine with drinking everything. There's uh, it, their entire lineage was made up of creatures drinking, you know what they needed, but now, you know, they can, they can chew and they there it's, it's a sign of status and a sign of kind of like um, evolution. They call themselves modernites when they have ah. these clogs in their mouths and they, and, you know, they smile and they, they like to go out to dinner and, and what have you. Um, so yes, it is, it's both a look, And kind of like a function, but a function that isn't absolutely necessary.
0: Yeah. And it almost seems like even, even more than just not absolutely necessary possibly has downstream consequences. You know, if you're now able to chew, you're open to this whole different, uh, world of, of calories that you maybe never could have, or like in, in an amount where suddenly you've got the quad that are running around and they're just really obese. That doesn't seem to be happening to anybody I know right now. Um, so that's interesting.
1: It's a lot about like the politics of need versus want as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm coming, the lens that I'm coming at it through is without uh, necessarily, not that I'm ashamed of this, but without beating people over the head is an animal rights lens.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I love, I love that uh, that's what your goal is. And I also love that I was immediately drawn to you know, the human rights element of this because there's a huge human rights element to this um, from smaller stories, like realizing that one particular person is athletically gifted and sub- subjecting them to tests over tests over tests to be like, Why do they build muscle more effectively? Why do they avoid injury more effectively? I mean, if you think about athletes in our culture today, all of them are somewhere inside of this where their blood is being tested constantly. It's not just about seeing if they're on drugs. It's trying to figure out like, what are they doing to their bodies to be this superhuman? But yeah, the animal rights piece is huge. And I'm not, I'm not making your story something else. I'm telling you that you clearly know how to do story because you've created something just at a glance that's very multi-layered. So talk to me about the, the origin of the, the idea being in animal rights, what, what got you sparked and wanting to do this, to write this? Sure.
1: sure. Yeah. So I have always kind of looked at the world through, um, <clears throat> I'm, I've always been interested in environmental sciences and ecology and essentially justice, you know, so justice for, uh, for, for, for the planet justice for the individuals on the planet. So Mm. I come at this from uh, a vegan perspective. Uh, And that can be a loaded term. Uh, So some people hear that and they automatically kind of roll their eyes. Um, Some people hear that and they're like, yeah, go, go, go. Um, With me, I I am interested in doing what you have just said, connecting the two. Uh, Mm. I want to to be able to say, yes, I'm proud of, of who I am but I'm also interested in your interpretation of it from a human rights perspective, because the way that I uh, view veganism is it is uh, an aspirational practice of compassion Mm. uh, towards sentient life. And that sentient life includes of course, animals, but human beings as well. And I think that that's really important to include And, And I feel that all life is of value. So I guess with COG, with the story, I'm just trying to say, uh, yes, look at what we're doing. Why are we doing this? But at the same time, none of us are perfect. So let's not try to be perfect. Let's just try to wake up in the morning and live with some compassion.
0: Yeah. So I want to just dip my toe in a pond for just a second, because you're talking about sentient life. And I mean this in the most sincere way, The, the most religious the most spiritual experience of my entire life was walking in the redwood forests outside of Crescent city, California. There's a a quiet about being among those trees. I don't know how they do it, but they literally deaden sound so that when you're in there, it's like you're in a cathedral, but it's a a cathedral that nature created. You don't see many animals. There are birds, but even the birds, somehow it's like, it's just this, this peaceful quiet to it. And so I, I connected with those trees and I swore, that they were looking at me, looking at them. Like there was sentience, just a different kind. So I, like I said, I only want to really just dip my toe in that pond and ask you if you've experienced that before, because that's the one challenge I have. And I'm being completely earnest right now. That's the one challenge I have with veganism. I was a vegetarian for a time. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I, I chose to 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 stop being a vegetarian. We still don't eat beef. Um, and that's fully an environmental choice for us. We don't eat beef because methane is really bad for the environment. So what are your thoughts on how how does plant life fit in? And and how do you distinguish the two and what you can use to keep yourself alive.
1: Absolutely. And I actually really appreciate that story. Um, I love to hear stories like I uh yeah. I am obsessed with plants and plant. Um I love I'm obsessed with trees. I'm obsessed with fungi. Um yes. I'm obsessed with I like I also like little things. You know, like anything small, I tend to like um, uh, as far as uh, uh, life on this planet. But yes, um, when you look at a tree, and I've read a lot about a lot about trees. I'm no expert. Um, one of the one of those interesting things I ever read about a tree is a tree is not an individual. A tree is a colony. Mm-hmm. Yep. So a tree is a colony at work, and to me, that is even more amazing. So, you're yeah. talking about these redwoods. So, what you're really talking about are ancient colonies um, that are standing all around you that you're communing with. Yeah. And to me, that's incredible. It's very powerful. And I think that humans are drawn to trees. The reason we're drawn to trees is because trees give us life. Yep. I mean, it is just innate within us to be drawn to what gives us life. And as far as choosing, uh, for me, veganism is more than a diet, it's not just what I put in my mouth. So, yes. I do eat plants, the difference being for the most part. And I, I will also preface this by saying, I am not an expert in this. This is my estimation of this. Yeah. So a plant you can, uh, cut down, replant, it can come back. A lot of the time, what you're eating are fruiting bodies off of plants. You're not Mm -hmm. eating the root. You're not, you're not necessarily killing. You are taking, Yeah. uh, but you are not necessarily killing when it comes to an animal uh, an animal can, it, it has a, a central nerve. They have a, excuse mm-hmm. me. They have a central nervous system. Uh, they have the ability to, uh, sense things and, and see things and feel things in a similar way that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have an understanding of that. We do not have an understanding of plants to the degree that we might think we do the average person.
0: Absolutely. Does Absolutely. yeah.
1: So, so I choose to eat plants instead of animals, Not because they're more alien and therefore easier Mm. to eat, but because they are on the surface of it, far more sustainable, far more
0: sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And so this is going to lead right back into the ma, because this is a question I had about your story. But, um, so the question for the ma is, do they feel subjected? Do they feel subjected? And the way that I'm going to ask that question is by saying, um, you take from the plant to eat. Why is milking a cow any different?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So the, the way that I'm framing COG is in between the, ch- like the chapter breaks are little pieces of maw culture. Nice. So it'll be like, how do they communicate? Uh, what do they see, think, feel, uh, so on and so forth. I'm purposely obscuring that in the beginning of the story so that they don't seem like much. And then as the story goes by, you realize that they do have a culture. They do have uh, sentience. So yes, uh, I am going to include those, those sorts of, I'm not stating what's right or wrong, but I'm stating yeah. that, that it exists. And what do you think of, uh, yeah. I ask you to, 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 think about that.
0: The best work is that way. If you, as soon as you tell me you are Ayn Rand, you're giving me the conclusion, you are. Uh, the sort of truth series where you you tell me if you don't think this way, you deserve to, to be dead ultimately. <laughs> right. So, right. right. Okay. So, it's like hanging with that idea because that's the way, and you did answer my question. I think I'm reframing it. Um, but the way that the Ma interact with the Qua is that they're taken from. And in order to be taken from, they have to be readily available. So, it's as if they're kind of in a fenced pasture. And maybe they are, I, mean, I, I don't really actually know what the the, the mod look like, but they're an offense pasture and they can't leave at their will and kind of go about and build culture as they see fit. They have to do so inside of the, the cause guidelines. And I think that that's what you're, you're saying without actually having said the words is, is when we milk an animal, we can't just like go outside. For example, I look outside right now and there's no cow like walking past that. I can just be like, Hey, I'm going to borrow some milk real quick. And maybe if you could that would be a difference. I, I'm not really sure. I'm just I'm kind of feeling out there. I'm saying that the the way that the the ma and cows are similar is that they have to be subjected in order to be used. Uh,
1: I would say that's an accurate observation as far as uh, subjugation, as far as being used and readily available. Uh, the way that I look at that is a little different. For me, a cow's milk is for cow babies, mm. and we are taking it without their permission and the dairy industry uh, uses up uh, these, these cows and disposes of them. I mean, so yeah, that's, yeah. that's where I have an issue with it. You said the mm-hmm. environmental, uh, the methane uh, for, yes. for the environmental purposes. For me, it's uh, to me to use a life, use a life and dispose of that life is for me the most abominable act uh, that, that I can think of. And I'm not to live is to kill. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, Uh, This is all aspirational. This is a practice. Of course, I'm not perfect either. So I do what I can each day to try to Mm -hmm. mitigate that and do more, uh, do give more than take essentially. And that's one way that I can, I don't need to, I don't need to consume something like milk, um, myself personally. Uh, so I, so I don't.
0: Yeah that, I mean, that makes, that makes a ton of sense for me. And like, it, it's funny just because I know who I am as a person, I hear your statements and suddenly like the debater in me just wants to play the devil's advocate for the fun of it. And I'm like, that's not what we're here to do. I like that part of human nature. I don't like it in myself always because um, you can have a lot of fun debating different ways of, of going about life. And I think I will say about myself, I attacked the issue ultimately just as a dietary thing when I became a vegetarian. And I did that largely because I I was bothered by the way that animals were treated. I didn't like the idea that I wasn't willing to kill an animal. And unless I was willing to kill it, I shouldn't eat it. But then instead of really going deep into it, I sat on the surface and ate potato chips. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's like kind of a shorthand for how I lived as a vegetarian Um, And so, very unhealthy. Thankfully, I was a teenager, and I could put whatever I wanted in my body and mostly not suffer. But um, so, getting back to your book, we've got the setup. It's a brilliant idea. The question immediately that burns to me is why a novella? Why not bigger? And I'm not I'm not criticizing short works. That's not how I'm framing that question. It just feels really big to me. It feels like it could go places.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, It's mainly the way I work. I, I work in small blasts, kind of small blasts of creativity. That's just how I best. i found that I can best put out work of short stories and novellas. Uh, I, it's not necessarily that I wouldn't want to write a novel. Um, but it's more that I feel like I know what I want to say. I have something to say, and I am going to, uh, use some of your time to, to, to get it across. And if I can do that in less pages and in less words, uh, then I think that's a good thing, you yeah. know, especially nowadays where people are pressed for time and, You know, people are kind of you want to read some big, huge novel. Believe me, I have, you know, Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily have the time here. There's a quick little thing and then you read it. And then my thing is, I hope I hope it lives in your head for a while. So like I get in there, say what I got to say, and then it kind of lives in your head for a while.
0: You you are embracing contradictions in a really fun, playful way, because uh, role-playing games go for months or years, and then you want to you want to create a novella. And both of those things, I think are delightfully true. What we didn't record in the beginning of our conversation is the, the environment you're sitting in right now is kind of a, a, a contradiction. Um, and so I guess for the listeners, I would describe it as that 1970s kind of vibe of wallpaper. You've got almost like lacy curtains back there. You've got some potted plants. Uh, you've got books on the shelf. You've got a birdhouse. And then you're sitting there wearing black with a a a skull on on the t-shirt design and you've got a a long beard and you're wearing a kind of a scully and you've got plugs in your ears and all of that kind of stuff. Like if you were walking out in nature and I saw you, I would make assumptions about you. If you were not in that room right now, I would make assumptions about who was about to come sit behind the mic. And I really, really like that in the best way. It feels to me like you're collecting experience as opposed to creating, um, this rigid identity. Does that vibe with you at all?
1: That, that is, I really like that. I really like that. That's kind of how to me we're, we're all works in progress. It's an evolution. Yeah. We're, we're all an evolution. And to not embrace that is to not embrace to me what it is to live here, where, whatever you, whatever religion, whatever spiritual path, whatever, whatever your belief is to me, the ultimate belief is truth. And, the truth is we are all here and we are all experiencing things every day. And if you're not changing every day, then you're not paying attention. So to me, like, yeah, you talk about kind of like the different, you know, all the different stuff and and the background and and the way I may appear and and what have you. And to me, yep. If you want to get to know a person, if you want, if you want to know the book, open it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's kind of how I, I feel about it. Like, and, and with you, you know, like I've actually read some of your work, huh. uh, so I've listened to your podcast. And of course I may look at you and make assumptions about you. Uh, I think the key to that knowing it, is knowing their assumptions.
0: Yes. It doesn't, there's no value in, but there so there is in that it's helpful to come to, uh, any kind of conversation or experience in life with your assumptions. But what you said just a moment ago is the truth about it is you can't hold them. They can't be the truth. They have to be the assumption. You have to know what serves you. Like I look at a stove and I'm going to assume that it's hot until it proves otherwise. That's kind of, I think a a safe way to interact with the world that sets you up for a lot of delights because there are people out there who will take advantage of you. There are people out there who have ulterior motives. There are qua out there who don't even understand that they're mining your soul for their own purposes. Um, and you are the maw in somebody else's life, even though you don't want to be. I don't know if you work a W2 and if you do, if you love it, but in that situation, you're probably part maw. They're like sucking your soul for their profits, um, which is just, by the way, another layer of the beauty of what you're creating. So with that in mind, it sounds to me like you don't have the full story arc just quite yet. It is somewhat a work in progress. With, with that in mind, give me not a spoiler, but give me kind of how you imagine landing this work.
1: People don't like endings a lot of the time. Uh, they tend to upset people because either it has to be a happy ending or mm-hmm. it has to be some sort of a, a, a shocking moment of an ending. Yep. Um, to me, there's nothing wrong with the song that kind of plays out, fades out, you know? And yeah. I'm thinking this may be how this this ends, where it's an open end, it's an invitation to a conversation. And so that conversation can happen, there is no abrupt end to the Mm. novel, uh, novella, I should say. So that's kind of how I'm thinking this is going to come to an end. Um, And I will assure anybody who may read it of this, it's not going to end with all of the world's problems being solved.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's heartbreaking. I was hoping you would do that for us. No, nope, um, can't do it. <laughs> I I completely relate to that. So, have you by any chance read any of the work of Dennis Johnson? I think he comes up on this podcast enough that people think I only read him and Stephen King. But uh, have you read Dennis Johnson at all by any I'm chance? Not. No. Okay. So, it, it resonates with me what you're saying. I would I would say that every single book he has written. Uh has has ended exactly the same way. It just sort of uh it it slowly fades out. There's no resolution, the world isn't fixed. Oftentimes the characters kind of mid-stride. It's not entirely uncommon that things end that way. I think that's fairly common in Westerns, that it's sort of like, oh, this event happened and now I'm riding into the next town to do it all over again. Right. There's one in specific, though. It's called Train Dreams. I would highly recommend you read it. It is likely my favorite book, just in that. I mentioned all the time and think about it almost daily, but it ends and it's not climactic. So you're not spoiling anything. It ends with the main character, uh, observing a, a wolf man at, um, uh, a, a carnival, just screaming at the sky, you know, and it, there's, there's no, there's no resolution. It's just that image of a, a wolf man screaming at the sky. That really feels a lot like what you're trying to do. It feels to me like a siren call. You're, you're screaming at the sky, like, wake up, look at what you're doing. You can't be perfect you probably still have to massacre some plants in order to live at the very least. All of our options are not great options, but there is a way to live consciously in this world and make a difference in doing that. So I want to probably end here by asking you, what's, what's the big deal. You're one person.
1: So I lived a lot of my life with the same, those same thoughts. Like I'm one person. What nihilistic,
0: you know, Uh,
1: I'm one person. I can't save the world. Why bother? right i don't think i can save the world uh that that's not my aim so my aim is to every single day wake up and give even if it's slightly give more than i take so that by the time that i leave this world i will have left something of substance instead Mm -hmm. of created yet another void in this world i don't necessarily think that i'm going to um be some sort of messenger that, that changes everybody's mind, but I have to live according to how I, I feel. And when your life aligns with your ethics, that changes you. I can speak from personal experience with you. and following through with that is a life's practice.
0: Wonderful. Uh, when people listen to this story, they're going to want to hear more from you. Uh, where, where are you going to send people to find you, interact with you, learn more about you and, and what you're up to?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, so brainwraithbooks at gmail.com. You can always get a hold of me there. Um, I, I'm on Instagram. I don't go on Instagram too, too much as far as posting and what have you. Um, I think the, the main way for them to get through to me would be the
0: perfect. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks for listening today. And remember, you should never feel bad for telling the truth. So get out there and write. And if you've got a killer story, apply to be a guest on our show. Email me at jodyjsperling@gmail.com at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Jody J. Sperling. And hey, there's no point in telling stories if nobody's listening.